0: I have you loud and clear.
1: Hello. (laughs) Hello. 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 Hello.
2: Welcome. (laughs) Science. And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or. Space.
3: Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, when the worst happens at nuclear power plants, how do we clean up the mess? We meet the scientists who are trying to use nature to neutralise contamination. Plus, a new way to target the spread of cancer, a slug-inspired surgical glue, and the science behind bicycles. I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked
4: Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
3: First up, a look at the top science headlines, and there's been some promising research regarding cancer this week. The main cause of death for cancer sufferers isn't actually the original tumour. Instead, it's caused when cells from the tumour break off and spread around the body. This process, known as metastasis, makes cancer much harder to treat. If you could pinpoint this process in the body with a kind of biological flag, you could then gear treatment towards the tumours without damaging the rest of the body. This sounds simple enough, but has proven almost impossible as different tumours behave in such different ways. But now a team at the University of California, Irvine may have found such a flag, which, in mice at least, allowed for a targeted attack on multiple tumours at once. I spoke to Dr Justine Alford, Senior Science Information Officer at Cancer Research UK, who wasn't involved in the study, about the research. Tumours
5: are incredibly diverse not just in one person, but also across people with different cancer types. We know that they are got a huge amount of variety in the genes that they have, the faulty genes that they have, and also the molecules that they produce. So in order to try and make medicine more personal, more targeted, to try and reduce the side effects and not attack healthy cells, it's really important to try and home in on features that are specific to the cancer itself. But that's really tricky when cancers are so diverse and are producing so many different molecules and flags. It can become really tricky to try and home in on something and to try and find something that is found not only in all the tumour cells in one person's cancer, but across different people's cancer as well.
3: So what's this new idea then to, to try and tackle this?
5: So there are already some cells in the body which can naturally home in on a feature which is found around tumours. Now, the surrounding around cells is called the matrix. And scientists have found that in some tumours, the environment around the tumour becomes more rigid, it becomes stiffer and that stiffness actually promotes the cancer and helps it spread and get worse around the body but there are actually some cells in our body which can naturally already detect this stiffness and then use that to then become a more specialized type of cell these are called mesenchymal stem cells so these are kind of like a like a blank slate cell that don't yet have their identity and they can use this stiffness to work out where they are in the body and then how they should respond to to these cues. So the scientists then use this knowledge to their advantage, and they developed a new type of cell based on these mesenchymal stem cells, which not only specifically can pick up this stiffness, but also respond to it and then make a molecule which then activates a chemotherapy drug. So they've developed a really specific targeted system so that it only targets the tumour rather than giving the drug throughout the body, which can cause more side effects.
3: Right, so there's this blank slate cell which recognises the environment that you find around tumours and then when it finds this environment, it actually changes and can be engineered to change into something useful
5: for fighting cancer. Exactly. So what they've done, it's really quite clever. They've they've tweaked these cells so that they make a molecule which chops up a pre-drug. So the scientists will give a drug that needs to be modified to turn into a chemotherapy that then can kill the cancer cells. So it's a two-part system. The cells themselves produce this molecule and then the scientists can give the drug, the pre-drug, and then when that arrives at the tumour, this molecule that the cells are making will modify that that molecule and then turn it into the chemotherapy drug, which then directly attacks the tumour right at the site where it hurts.
3: And have they tested this? Does it work?
5: They've tested this so far in mice, so it's all it's all early preclinical work, but so far the results have been encouraging. So they were looking at mice with breast cancer. And in these mice they found that these cells not only homed in specifically to the to the primary tumour, to the tumour in the breast, but they also homed in to the tumour that had spread to the lungs. And it killed these tumor cells and caused them to shrink.
3: Okay so they've had promising results in these mice but how how encouraging would you say this is and how important is this in, in in the grand scheme of things
5: Now this process of spreading is called metastasis and unfortunately when that happens it makes the tumor much more difficult to treat at the moment we don't have any treatments that can specifically target metastasis and and that is a huge problem since cancer spread is is responsible for the majority of, of cancer deaths. So we desperately do need to find new ways to target this and to stop it from happening. Whether or not this will actually translate into something useful in the clinic, we just don't know. It's definitely promising and really encouraging. But at this stage, it is very early and it is experimental. So they will need to do lots more research. But the promising thing is, is that scientists have already used this kind of stem cell in clinical trials before, and they have shown To be safe in people. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily mean that this particular type of cell that they're using in this study will necessarily be safe and effective, but at least we do have some grounds for positivity there. Well, let's hope so. That was Dr. Justine Alford of Cancer Research UK, and
3: the work we were discussing was published in Science, Translational Medicine. Now, if you're having an operation or need a wound closing, you may be given a medical glue in order to help you mend. But according to Research Out This Week, current glues have some major limitations. For example, some don't do well with wet surfaces, and others can't hold their grip when the body moves. So what can be done to improve these properties? Well, this week, Harvard University have announced a type of glue that's stronger and better able to cope with wet and dynamic conditions. Katie Haler spoke to David Mooney about the project's rather slimy
6: inspiration. These slugs have developed a type of mucus, that allows them to adhere very, very strongly to a variety of different types of surfaces, to do it in the presence of, of water and other fluids, and were very flexible and allowed a lot of dynamic movement. So the slugs had you know, solved some of the key issues that we were looking to address, and while we are not attempting to mimic how they do it in terms of there's no mucus from slugs in, in our devices, we use that as inspiration for how one could try to design better adhesives.
7: Please tell me you had some slugs sitting around in your office, which you were watching diligently.
6: Only fake ones, unfortunately. So uh, we don't do any actual research with slugs. So a variety of scientists have been studying slugs for decades, trying to understand their mucus and its properties. And so we learned from all that science that had been done before. Tell us about
7: your product then. Talk me through the chemistry.
6: So there's two key features to this concept for a New type of medical adhesive. The first is that you want to have a very strong chemical bonding to whatever you're trying to adhere to. The other feature that we combine with this though is a material that can absorb and dissipate a lot of forces or stresses. An analogy might be here a shock absorber on your car. And so here the adhesive both sticks really strongly and can absorb a lot of stresses So they don't get felt at the interface and don't cause the adhesive to peel off or fail.
7: So would this be someone stretching because they're recovering from a wound and they're getting more mobile? Or if someone moves around on the operating table, is it those sorts of movements that you're trying to build in inherent flexibility in your adhesive to be able to cope with?
6: partly those types of movements and then other movements that are naturally coming, for example, from different organs.
7: Back to the chemistry dent, talk me through how you achieve this strong bonding.
6: So we achieve the strong bonding by having long molecules that have a high density of positive charges. The key feature here is that tissues and cells in our body are overall negatively charged. So the positively charged molecules in our adhesive want to interact with the tissues and cells in our body, and then we provide the right um, chemistry so then the actual positively charged uh, entities on our adhesive can chemically bond and form stable, what are called covalent bonds, with the underlying tissue and cells.
7: And you mentioned this first layer, but what about the second layer, this ability of the material to absorb energy?
6: So we have a uh, what's called a hydrogel, which is long polymer molecules that are swollen in water. And the positively charged molecules bind both to the underlying tissue, but also bind to this hydrogel. You can think of it as being somewhat squishy and has the capability of deforming very readily. And as it's deformed, it can absorb and dissipate all these stresses or forces that the adhesive might get subjected to from the surrounding tissues.
7: And tell me, when you tested this um, in animals, which you have, what have you
6: found? We can use this to adhere medical devices to beating hearts, um, for example, pig hearts, and have a very strong and stable adhesion that simply was not possible before. We can seal holes in tissues, for example, the heart or other tissues, and have those um, prevent uh, any type of bleeding or leakage of fluids. Uh, We can use these as a means of stopping bleeding on, for example, a lacerated liver. uh, And it's possible to use these on the skin, for example, as an adhesive and an agent to promote wound healing.
7: Why do you think this new product is important? In what ways is it important for surgery?
6: One is it enables new capabilities that we simply did not have before. For example, if we have a device we want to put on uh, the beating heart, Um, The current adhesives simply don't allow you to stably adhere this type of device. And then we can also achieve some of the similar functions of the current adhesives, but do much better.
3: Some mollusk-inspired medicine there. That was Katie Haler musing over mucus with Dave Mooney from Harvard University. And that research is out this week in Science. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills. Still to come, a look at the science of bicycles and why there's a little bit of Dr Doolittle in all of us. Before that, though, it's time to bust some myths. This week, Kat Arnie's holding her nose in search of the truth behind this whiffy bit of science. Asparagus.
8: It's a perfect time to grab some of those homegrown, tasty green spears. But for some people, their enjoyment of the veg is somewhat tempered by an unpleasant side effect and that's stinky wee. It's maybe best described as a fetid, sulphurous smell, akin to bad breath or a particularly noxious fart, and it can turn up within an hour or less of eating asparagus. But because only a proportion of the population can smell the stuff, it's usually assumed that only those people make it. But the truth is actually a lot more complicated the first scientist to turn their mind, or rather their nose, towards the problem was Polish chemist and Dr. Marcelli Nenki. He identified the source of the smell as a sulphur-containing chemical called methylmercaptan, also known as methanethyl. Given that some people make the stinky chemicals after eating asparagus and others don't, it was thought that this was the deciding key factor. In the 1950s, researchers studied families of stinky wee producers and non-stinkers, concluding that the ability to make captain from asparagus is linked to one single gene, as yet unidentified, which presumably breaks down the asparagus chemicals into the smelly ones. A larger study in the 1980s also confirmed the finding. It seems to come down to one gene. You either inherit two stinky versions – one from mum and one from dad, two non-stinky versions, or one of each, in which case you're still a stinker. But it's not quite as simple as that. It turns out that not only do you have to make the noxious chemicals in your wee, you also have to be able to smell them too. Like the ability to metabolise methylmercaptan from asparagus, the ability to actually detect the smell of the stuff is also genetic. But in this case, there's more than one gene involved – A large-scale genomic study by US researcher Lorelai Michi and her team revealed more than 800 locations in the genome that are linked to the ability to smell Mitharma, Captain. Their results were published in the Christmas 2016 edition of the British Medical Journal, never the most serious edition of the normally-stayed publication, with the title Sniffing Out Significant P-Values, genome-wide association of asparagus anosmia and the suggestion that future replication studies are necessary before considering targeted therapies to help anosmic people discover what they're missing. As a non-smeller myself, all I can say is I'll pass. So to be an asparagus wee smeller, you need to have the crucial combination of having the genetic variations to make Metharma captain along with the right variations to detect it. This does mean that there's a potential for a mismatch, which could make for some awkward domestic bathroom experiences if you're an
3: unwitting producer, while your partner is a sensitive smeller. catarni there. And if you think you smelled a rat with any commonly touted science, do get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or the email address to use is Chris at the com. Now, this week marks five years since the Olympic Games kicked off in London, during which the cycling team won a total of eight gold medals. And British riders are still going strong, as demonstrated by Chris Froome's victory in the Tour de France for the third time in a row. But it's not all down to the riders. There's some serious science going on behind the scenes, as Tom Crawford has been finding out. First, though, a flashback to five years ago.
1: British Olympic history, a record six gold medal here now at London 2012. Get on your feet for the night of
0: cycling. Sir Chris Hoy is in uncharted waters
2: now. It still gives me goosebumps, even now. Not content with just reminiscing. I went along to this summer's Royal Society exhibition to meet Professor Stuart Burgess. He's an engineer who worked on the actual bikes used in the 2012 Games and he had one to show me.
4: It's a track bike for going around the the velodrome. The bike can go up to 50 miles per hour Uh, so it's highly optimised for speed throughout the whole bike. And at Bristol University we've worked on the chain drive, that's the chain, sprocket and front chain wheel to reduce the losses in the drive, to maximise the efficiency as much as possible, to help the bike go as fast as possible.
2: So this is a case of British cycling, recruiting academics like yourself
4: to be like, guys, could you please help us go faster using science? Yeah, cycling is a really interesting sport because the bicycle has to suit the rider. It's not like javelin or shot put where everyone has the same equipment. And therefore, there's a lot of engineering science that goes into the bike and when a team like Team GB win a medal, it's it's not just the riders. I mean they are the most important part, but it's also a reflection on the design of the bike
2: as well. And what kind of things then would be incorporated into a bike design for just in general in terms of going faster and also in terms of a specific rider?
4: Well the aerodynamics are the most important factor for a bike. You know when a is going fifty miles an hour The aerodynamics of of the rider are very important, so he leans right down. His clothing equipment is really important. They wear those skin-tight suits. But also the transmission is important. Even though the chain and the sprockets are a small part of the whole system, it's important to minimise the losses in those components. And so at Bristol University we've done a lot of testing, testing of all kinds of lubricants, coatings, materials, Uh, sprockets to see which ones are the most smooth and and the most efficient so i'm a mathematician and i noticed
2: you have a lovely looking equation on your display here so could we possibly just go and have a
4: quick look and you talk me a little bit through that basically we've got the drag equation for a bicycle so on the one side you have the power output of the rider which is pretty phenomenal for these Olympic riders. And on the right-hand side, you have the various contributions to drag. So you have the aerodynamic drag. You also have the rolling resistance of the tyres. You also have an acceleration term. But you also have an efficiency term for the efficiency of the transmission. And the reason for having that equation up there is to show the general public that engineers use maths and science to design a faster bike because when you look at the equation, you can then see which are the important parameters. You see that mass is an important parameter, drag coefficient is an important parameter, the rolling resistance of the tyres is an important parameter. So an engineer looks at those and then says, well, I need to minimise certain parameters, like the mass and the drag coefficient, and I need to maximise certain parameters, like the transmission efficiency. So math is very important to an engineer. And just when you said the power
2: output is phenomenal for a, an Olympic rider, could you give me a comparison or some idea of
4: just how powerful these athletes are? Yeah. Well, when a commuter cycling to work, that would typically be 60, 70 watts. But when some of these sprinters are going around the track, sometimes it can be one and a half kilowatts of power. So it's an incredible amount of power. And the torque they're putting into the the crank and the chain is is really very high. So I imagine you have to make
2: sure these things are also designed to be able to withstand that level of power and torque.
4: Yeah, that's the great challenge because on the one hand, you need very lightweight components. So you use carbon fiber and the bike itself weighs 6.8 kilograms. So it's a very lightweight bike. But on the other hand, you have some of the most powerful, strong athletes in the world who are going to exert great forces on this bike. So you have to make it strong at the same time. And that's the great challenge of engineering.
2: And just finally, will this kind of technology make its way into consumer
4: bikes? Yeah, that's a question that we've been answering during the week. and. Yeah, after a couple of years, this technology drips down to club cycling, etc. But not only that, we're hoping we can spin off some of the technology onto other chain drives in factories to make factories more efficient. So it's not just about the Olympics. We want this to have a benefit for society. A great example of science and sport
3: working hand in hand. Professor Stuart Burgess was speaking to Tom Crawford. Now, watching sport may put your emotions through the mill, but understanding other people's emotions plays a fundamental part in our ability to communicate. But does this extend to animals as well? If you heard this... Would you know this tree frog was in distress? How about this black-capped chickadee? Well, a study from the Planck Institute in the Netherlands suggests our ability to sound out stress across animals is biologically rooted in all of us. Their findings indicate that humans mainly rely on specific tones that can indicate agitation, called emotional arousal. Lead author Piera Filippi explained to Izzy Clark how it works.
9: The emotional arousal is the level of responsiveness to external stimulation. This might range from uh, very uh, subdued to highly excited. So for instance, right now you hear my voice, it's quite relaxed. There are no dangers around, you might infer it from my voice. But if I start talking in a more agitated way, uh, you might infer that maybe there's something around me that is disturbing me. And this is something that is quite clear from, we can infer from the voice uh, of humans as well as of other animals, it turns out how did you investigate this? So there were basically two main questions. Uh, The first question was uh, simply whether humans are able to recognize levels of emotional intensity or arousal in uh, animal calls or animal vocalizations. And if so, we wanted to see whether that is a biologically rooted ability, an an instinct, so to speak, or whether it's uh, driven by the cultural background or by the language that the given human speaks. Maybe there are some language speakers that are more sensitive to sound modulation than other language speakers. We included three different groups. So we had native speakers of English, of German, and Mandarin, which is a tonal language. And it turned out that across all of these languages, humans perform equally good in recognizing the emotional intensity in animal localizations. So this suggests uh, that this is an ability that is actually biologically universal, so it doesn't only the given language that humans speak.
10: To test this, Piera and the team played two calls from a range of animals. One of the sounds displayed a high level of emotional arousal, say, when an animal was agitated, and another when it was calmer, with a low level of emotional arousal. All the participants had to do was choose which of the two sounds was the agitated signal.
9: So I found that humans are actually particularly good in recognising emotional, higher level of emotional intensity in animal vocalisations. And to do so, they rely on uh, certain acoustic features in the calls, particularly on the acoustic features that are related to the tone of voice. And this applies across all of the species we included in our study. So tone of voice, the way we modulate our voice, is crucial in expressing emotions and that is crucial in perceiving, in recognizing the emotional content across all of these species. And these species span from little frogs, alligators, up to barbary macaques and humans.
10: The reason why we're able to recognise these signals is still being explored, with further research looking into frequencies of these noises, and whether it might even work in reverse. Can animals actually recognise when humans are agitated? And looking to the future, these findings could help improve artificial intelligence.
9: This finding can be applied in progressing technology for emotional uh, expression and recognition in something that actually sounds quite cold, so to speak, which is artificial speech, right? Speech that is synthesized artificially. So I think that it would be a good idea to integrate what we know from findings on actual animal vocalizations that are emotional and apply that to emotional expression in synthesized speech.
3: Izzy Clark speaking there with Piera Filippi and her work was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B earlier this week. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills. And now it's time to dive into the main topic of this week's show and to take you on from here, it's Greya Jackson. In March 2011,
1: a major earthquake off the coast of Japan sent a 15-metre high tsunami surging into the nuclear power facility at Fukushima, disabling the power supplies and cooling systems. Three reactors rapidly went into meltdown and subsequent explosions released significant quantities of radioactive material into the water and atmosphere enough to be graded a Level 7 on the International Nuclear and Radiological Event Scale. There is no Level 8. This is as bad as it gets. This wasn't the first accident of its kind, and sadly, it won't be the last. Thankfully, science can help with the aftermath. I'm Greg Jackson, and in this programme, I'm finding out about new breakthroughs to help clean up when nuclear disasters strike. Like Fukushima, the Chernobyl nuclear power station in Ukraine, part of the former Soviet Union, also went into meltdown in 1986, and it too got a grade 7 on the International Nuclear and Radiological Event Scale. An explosion caused a nine-day-long fire to eject radioactive material into the atmosphere, and over 30 years on, experts still can't agree on how many it killed. What we do know is that two people died immediately as a result of the blast, and another 29 died in hospital over the next few days. The harder bit is quantifying the long-term effects. A paper in the Journal of International Cancer predicts that by 2065, 41,000 people will have died of cancer. When the Chernobyl accident happened, we realised
11: that this was a serious discharge and these elements were getting put into the environment. And it was only a matter of time to my thinking that another accident would happen sometime one day.
0: As a standard part of sort of um, the nuclear fission process, you develop lots of different radionuclides.
1: Joe Hiltrek and Lynn McCaskey, both from the University of Birmingham. Joe looks at these radionuclides. These are just radioactive atoms.
0: Some of those are relatively insoluble. They won't travel very far in the environment, etc. Others form water-soluble salts. And those in particular are, are more difficult to target because they dissolve into groundwater. They move away from, from the sites, et cetera.
1: And I suppose the thing being water-soluble is that if they are water-soluble, that means that they can move into our food chain and our water sources.
0: Yeah, so potentially they can. And if you look at strontium, its chemistry is very similar to the element calcium. And calcium phosphate is what makes your bones, your teeth. So if your body ingests strontium, there's a chance that that can then get into your your bones and things. Cesium, it mimics another element called potassium, which is very important in the body for neurological functions. So these sorts of of elements, if they get into your body, will, will, will cause you health problems, serious health problems.
1: When Joe says serious health problems, he means cancer. After Fukushima, many governments cut back on their nuclear programme. But five years later, it seems as though nuclear is back on the agenda because of its status as one of the few reliable and low-carbon power sources. It's hard to find statistics, but worldnuclear.org says there are 245 reactors worldwide, with a further 60 currently under construction, which means it's likely that there will be another nuclear accident. The question is, can we manage it quickly, safely and effectively? That's the question I'm hoping to answer today. First, though, back to Chernobyl. Oh, my name is Irina Mihinko. Irina Mihenko was living in what was then the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic and remembers that Chernobyl nuclear facility was a big deal back then, a huge source of national pride. And as a result, it attracted lots of young people to work there.
12: Chernobyl station was a really, um, at that time, state-of-the-art. It was uh, very exciting to work uh, on an atomic station which will provide Electricity, energy for huge territories. The city was very young, there were a lot of young kids, and it was nice.
1: Until the 26th of April 1986.
12: What can I say? When it happened, it was really something nobody could expect.
1: Irina was around 100 kilometers away and on maternity leave with her little daughter. That may sound far away, but actually, in two days, the radiation had traveled 1,000 kilometers and set off alarms in another nuclear power plant in Sweden. 1,000 kilometers. This was actually what forced the Soviet Union to publicly admit there had been an explosion. On the 28th of April at 9pm, a news programme read the following statement.
2: There has been an accident
7: at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One of the nuclear reactors was damaged. The effects of the accident are being remedied. Assistance has been provided for any affected
1: people. An investigative commission has been set up. As you can tell, there was very little information about what was going on. And remember, the internet
12: wasn't around, and nobody knew what to do or what the risks were. We didn't know anything about scale. We just understood, okay, it's radiation, something dangerous. It's something you will not see, sniff or experience in any way. Uh, But at the same time, it's not harmless, so... Definitely the only solution is to get out of the contaminated zone but uh, the explosion was so big and impact was so big so it was not realistic for everybody.
1: And Irina's brother and sister-in-law were one of the young graduates who had moved to this site of National
12: Pride to work on Chernobyl power plant. As I remember my sister-in-law telling me they were happily wandering around the prepaid. They went on their business, shopping, etc. And after uh, they were informed that evacuation will happen, they just packed their things, two backpacks. And (laughs) it was so funny. And my sister-in-law said, you know what? When we came, we had two backpacks, and that's all. And now, several years on, I have the same two backpacks on and two children, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to me, And that's it. If we are going the same way. Did they
1: expect to be able to return and go back and continue yeah. their lives?
12: At first, they thought everything will be sorted within a couple of weeks or so. But it turned out uh, the scale of disaster was too huge. So they were not allowed to come back.
1: I mean, now you can, people can go back and it's a bit of a tourist destination to learn a bit more about it. I wonder, have you ever been back or
12: considered going back? I've never been back, but uh, my family, they went back. It was, I think, several years ago. They Back they took a lot of pictures. They went to their house, to their flat, and all dilapidated and ruined a lot of streets are covered with uh, growth so it goes down effectively uh, they find it's distressing mm. people who didn't really get enough help and definitely later on the health problem develops it's not that immediate uh, those who got um, radio disease, etc, etc, they were helped immediately. But those who didn't get acute poisoning were really neg- neglected. Uh, unfortunately, to see the scale, you need time. You need time because a lot of these things develop slowly, develops not that explicitly, it builds up. It's really scary. <laughs> Um my family, they are under medical surveillance for all these 30 years. Once a year, they have to go to the clinic.
1: I suppose almost in some ways that waiting in fear that something might happen um, is
12: a horrible thing to live with. Uh, yes, but in reality, we humans somehow adapt to the situation. And uh, in the fact that yes, on the background you have this nugging feeling that some can get wrong, uh, but life is going on, and you are sticking to everyday life. You are doing this, you are working here, you are involved in all sorts of things, and uh, the point is to keep your, mm, you stay as positive as as, as you can we'll do our best otherwise you can sit in the corner and cry all your life so what's the point point? Mm. and I think we still need time to realise and understand as humankind how to deal with this
1: It's heartening to hear Irina's positive outlook on things but to me it really highlights how important finding a solution to deal with this is when the Chernobyl accident happened, we realised that this was
11: a serious discharge and these elements were getting put into the environment. And it was only a matter of time to my thinking that another accident
1: would happen sometime one day. This is Lynn McCaskey from the University of Birmingham. It was Chernobyl that changed the course of Lyn's research.
11: So we really wanted to pursue the research so that we had a possible solution sitting and waiting
1: if that day should come. And sure enough, that day came 25 years later with Fukushima. Before all this, though, Lynn was researching how you reverse metal contamination using a really cool concept called bioremediation.
11: Bioremediation is a sort of global term where you're using um, living creatures or plants to clean up pollution or to decontaminate environments that have been um,
1: contaminated by things that you might want to remove. Things like harmful metals that we humans release into the environment, be that cadmium or lead or even radioactive metals like uranium. Lynn doesn't use a plant though, she uses microbes. But to begin with, it was a lot of hard work isolating one microbe among hundreds. My brief when I turned up in the lab to start this project was that, um,
11: that the chap that had started it called Alistair Dean had had this idea in the mid-70s that you could use microbes to hoover up um, toxic metals. And he'd got a grant to try to make this happen. And he got as far as collecting hundreds of strains from the environment from actually a contaminated site somewhere in the northwest. And he said, welcome, Lynn, those are your bacteria go and develop a process. <laughs> and so I spent about 18 months going through this collection one by one. It was very painstaking, but eventually uh, we came up with one that worked. And what was this one called? It was originally classified professionally. This is the 1980s, so we didn't have molecular biology. Uh, it was called a citrobacter, which is a very harmless microbe that comes in the soil. And then when molecular biology came along, it got reclassified as something called Seratia. Um, it's a naturally occurring strain, which means it had the chance to pick up all sorts of genetic bits and pieces from the environment, which is how we think it evolved to be able to cope with life in a metal-contaminated environment and take the metals out of its environment
1: and basically lock them up and drop them harmlessly. Sounds a bit too good to be true, doesn't it? And weirdly, the harmless substance that it locks the metal into is really similar to a mineral we all know very well, Bone. So how does it do it? Well, this microbe produces an enzyme, basically a substance or catalyst that speeds up chemical reactions. And then... It takes one constituent of bone called phosphate
11: and then when a metal is around, instead of using calcium as you would make bones out of, it precipitates the toxic metal with phosphate and it locks it up into a solid which is analogous to what you would find in our bones. And this worked beautifully well and we realised the bacteria's function is just to make a mineral they don't care whether you're taking up toxic metals or not and it's actually this mineral which is akin to bone which is the material of interest because by this stage the bacteria don't even have to be there because the material hoovers up radionuclides and so you can kill the bacteria and it's perfectly
1: safe to handle and to use and that's because once the bacteria is gone the chemical reaction can't reverse very easily these toxic metals are reduced to a non-hazardous white powder. It's as if you'd taken a bone and ground it up very finely. But the microbes aren't fussy. You don't need to feed them uranium to make this hoovering substance. Lynn later found out that you can just use calcium. Well, we don't use
11: uranium anymore because we realised that you could do a very similar trick just using calcium, which is totally innocuous. Nowadays, the bacteria are making calcium phosphate. It's called hydroxyapatite. So that is actually the material
1: that is used to accumulate radioactive materials from water. The radioactive atoms can still be slurped up, but there's an added benefit to using this hydroxyapatite, the calcium phosphate, rather than plopping the microbe itself into the contaminated water. With hydroxyapatite, you don't need the enzymes and microbes anymore. Why is this better? Well, if you have a more acidic water, for instance, the enzymes don't work very well. So you make it more robust and reliable because it can work in a larger number of environments. That said, you don't just want to go chucking it all into contaminated water because, well, how do you collect it back up again? The bacteria are very smart when they're growing. They produce a sticky substance um, which
11: sticks them onto surfaces. So if we persuade them right, we can stick them onto sponges and they grow and they make this surrounding environment just right for the mineral to grow. So actually we're making a spongy material which has got a layer of this bone substitute on it and that is an absolutely fantastic filtration material. But the benefit of bacteria is because you can grow them Uh, you can make the material that you need and the quantities that you need in a very short space of time. So the advantage of this is that effectively you can deliver the material on demand. And in an emergency, you're not going to have any notice that there's going to be a demand.
1: So it's almost a rapid response. Lynn had a concept and it didn't just apply to nuclear accidents like Chernobyl and Fukushima. If ever there was a dirty bomb, i.e. an explosive that contains nuclear material, this could be deployed. Lynn had effectively developed a weapon of her own, this hydroxyapatite. And this is how Joe Hiltrek fits into the picture, because you don't just want one weapon against these sorts of emergencies. You want an arsenal of weapons.
0: If we have a library of materials, then obviously we, we have much greater confidence that we can clean up not only the existing waste, but should there be another accident. We can deploy materials right away, and I think that's you know that, that's very important. We have to make nuclear power as safe as possible, and and I think knowing in advance that there are materials present should there be an accident um, it, is a very important thing. So the materials that we use will either absorb those onto the surfaces, and bioHA is one of those. It tends to be a surface absorption process.
1: BioHA is just another name for hydroxyapatite, by the way. The bio meaning it's produced by a biological process as opposed to a chemical one.
0: The other way chemically you can treat things is what's known as ion exchange. Some elements like to give up electrons. Electrons are negatively charged. So you end up with is a, is a cation, which is a positively charged species. Cesium and strontium fall into that category. Other elements prefer to take up electrons and become negatively charged. One of those that, again, sometimes people need to deal with in terms of reactivity is iodide.
1: Joe has a material called zeolite. It's a white powder and it locks up these positively charged atoms, the cesium and the strontium. Cesium and strontium are positively charged because they have more protons than electrons. Electrons are the negatively charged ones that whiz around the nucleus of the atom. And in the nucleus are the protons, which are positively charged, and the neutrons, which, as the name might suggest, are neutral. What Joe's zeolite does is it shares its electrons with the cesium and strontium, causing them to bind together. But that's not all.
0: We attach small iron oxide particles to it. That provides the magnetism then.
1: You want magnetism because this exchange is reversible. It's not stable, and therefore the cesium and strontium can be re-released from the zeolite. However, if you magnetise the particle, you can then separate the radioactive material from the water. How? Well, you…
0: …pump the water through a tube that had very strong magnets around the outside. They'll attract the particles and you just have pure water going through. Uh, The other thing you could do in theory, although in practice I'm not sure how you'd do this, is to sort of drag a magnet through to collect the particles afterwards. That I think is a wonderful concept, but I'm not an expert on magnetism I don't know how strong of magnets you'd need to be able to do that. But ultimately that would be the the most wonderful thing, wouldn't it, that you just disperse these in a harbour. And then you drag a magnet through, all the particles with the radioactivity just get taken onto your magnet.
1: So once you've managed to get these soluble species out of the water column, out of whatever's contaminated, what happens next to that? Because I imagine you don't really want that around kicking around for much longer either or out in the open.
0: Exactly. So the traditional route is to put it in a steel drum and put in a lot of cement. Okay, The cement will both give you a non-soluble barrier, if you like, plus it's in a steel drum, So that's considered at least a one method of sort of long-term storage. A downside of that is you've increased the volume of your your waste now because you're, I don't know the exact ratio, but it might be one part zeolite to 10 parts cement, say. So you've multiplied up the amount of waste you have to worry about for the longer term. Um, Another thing you can think about is to thermally break down your material into something that's got a, a higher density, so there's less of it, that better chemically bonds. The species within it. So we also have projects that are involved in making uh, materials that we know in a one-step thermal process will go straight from a, uh, an ion exchanger to take things out of water into a very dense ceramic waste form, which can then be put straight into uh, storage. And so rather than increasing the volume through putting in cement, you decrease the volume by thermally collapsing it into a more dense material.
1: Because I suppose ultimately you still have a waste product that you still need to bury. I mean, how far away are we from perhaps creating something that we could just dump in landfill rather than having to find these storage facilities?
0: I think you're always going to need special storage facilities for those materials that have been used to take up cesium and strontium. The radionuclides themselves have about a 30-year half-life, and so the half-life is the time it takes for the radioactivity to dec- decrease by half. You want something that you can be able to store safely till it really decays down to a low level. So you may be looking at being able to store it for 500 or 1,000 years. You won't want to do that in your normal landfill. So there has to be some sort of safe storage for that sort of time scale. And that gets into the area of, of what's usually called a geological disposal facility, a GDF. And that's something that the UK is still debating, I think.
1: Lynn and Joe have these materials, this zeolite and this hydroxyapatite. And they worked well in theory, but that's not good enough. You need to be able to demonstrate it works in a real emergency. They had been working with Japanese institutions as part of their funding with the BBSRC, and that was for 10 years or so. But then Fukushima happened, and it gave Lynn and Joe an opportunity to put their money where their mouth was. Here's Lynn again.
11: Well, we all saw what happened on, on the TV, and we were all horrified by it. So there was was a tsunami, Um, there was an immediate problem with contamination and the problem with contamination is continuing. Um, The the Japanese engineers, as I understand it, have built a wall of ice around the plant to, to stop water going backwards and forwards but there is an enduring problem of uh, residual contamination, including around the plant and also in the harbour water.
1: And what were the elements of concern?
11: Mainly cesium and strontium, um, which have half-lives of about 29 years. So left to their own devices, they would decay away to, um, to low levels, but obviously it would take a long time to decay to safe levels and they need to be treating it if they possibly can.
1: And that's where Lynn
11: and her team came in. Well, my colleague Stephanie handley Sadu went out to Japan to to try to develop the the technology out there in their laboratories. For practical reasons, it was quite difficult to actually get access to the site, to the the actual um, seawater. So uh, we did some tests with some Japanese seawater away from the actual site, but in in that general region and uh, we put our own source of strontium in there that wasn't radioactive, so it was perfectly safe to handle, and did the tests with that. So it was, it was a surrogate
1: system, basically. They needed to be able to show that their hydroxyapatite worked in this particular water, not the sterile water they'd been using in the lab, but salty Japanese seawater. Now, interestingly, hydroxyapatite is found on the commercial market already. What's different about Lin's is that it's made by microbes, a biological process. All the other stuff is made in a very different way, via chemical reactions. Surprisingly, though, Linz worked, and the commercially available stuff didn't. Nature just does it better. Lin doesn't know why, and this is something she's still investigating. The biological preparation has got some some feature about it that makes it better able to perform in seawater. Did that then enable you to help with the clear-up at Fukushima?
11: Um, well, work is still
1: ongoing, obviously.
11: Having, having done these preliminary tests, um, we're now making a report back to the sponsors. We also did some work on some groundwater contaminating underneath a European nuclear facility, uh, which is quite heavily contaminated with strontium. And the biological material removed that. That was that was real radioactive strontium-90 from a real groundwater uh, that was contaminated. And, and that was cleaned up as well. And the residual radioactivity was, was down to background levels. So we're very pleased with the outcome of this particular project because it's shown that there's certainly feasibility there for future cleanup. It sounds very promising. It's very promising indeed and we're well pleased with it. And uh, we're continuing to work with the Japanese team obviously to see if we can take it forward now because the next step is to make more quantities of the material and actually get it out there for real life testing in the field. Wow, okay. And when do you
1: think that might happen?
11: Um, Certainly over the next few years. Obviously a problem
1: like this is not going to go away but it needs to be cleaned up as quickly as possible. So now that we have these tools, your hydroxyapatite and Joe zeolite as well, do you think that's enough to assure people to move forward as we head in a, possibly in a nuclear direction?
11: I hope so. I hope so, because obviously now um, end of life of, of a reactor and cleaning up and decommissioning are very much um, in the forefront of people's thinking. You can't just walk away at the end, you know, you have to factor in the costs of decommissioning and so every technology that's available enables people to make predictions as to the likely scale of the cleanup problem
1: and the cost at the end of the reactor's life. And Joe agrees these materials could help nuclear power become less of a daunting prospect because you can clean up accidents but also get rid of all this legacy waste.
0: Yeah I think so. I think if you can give an honest and realistic assessment that should there be another accident like Fukushima, you are better prepared. That helps to reassure people. That that because uh, in, in terms of nuclear power, it is of course one of the real worries is that you know radionuclides get into the environment, might get into the food chain, um, cause cancers down the road. That's that sort of thing. It you know, it's realistic. People have to think about that. But the more we can do in advance to mitigate those effects, I think that's an important aspect of of new nuclear build and reassuring the population and reassuring ourselves that you know we are doing things that will help prevent problems should there be another accident.
1: Ultimately, we wouldn't want an accident in the first place, but here your technology has some other implications in terms of decommissioning and closing down power plants.
0: Yes. Whenever a power plant is closed down, you have storage ponds, you have contaminated um, plant, etc., that you have to decommission. And again, one of the aspects of that will be to potentially wash the materials and wash the radionuclides off or to clean up all the water, etc. And again, you could deploy our materials for, the, for that. And the other aspect as well is, should there be something like a terrorist dirty bomb? You know, our materials, if they're ready to be deployed, should there be something like that, I think is another important aspect. And in fact, the first co-funded project that Lynn and I had was aimed very much at that. Could we make a very portable system that could be deployed should there be a dirty bomb and you have a relatively small area contaminated, but you want to quickly decommission and then get rid of the radionuclides. What you'd like is to be able to say, no, we've got materials that you can deploy here on a mobile plant.
1: I would like to hope it would never come to having to clean up after a dirty bomb. But a portable decontaminating machine? My brain is imagining a fire truck, except instead of blasting water, it would blast out zeolite and hydroxyapatite.
0: I think that we're we're aiming to make real impact. And as a scientist, it's, it's wonderful to do basic research and to take knowledge forward and to make new materials. But it's also really rewarding to think... I'm actually doing something that's going to help in a very important problem. And I think, you know, cleaning up nuclear waste and legacy waste and being prepared for accident prevention is putting something back into society for my training, and every scientist to, to a greater or less extent feels they want to do something that can help society.
11: But at the same time, obviously I'm very sorry that the testing of this technology has come about as a result of unhappy situations that have obviously affected a lot of people adversely. But if it hadn't been for the opportunity to test it, then it would have sat on the shelf untested and then if it were needed one day in another circumstance, we wouldn't be so confident because we wouldn't have had the chance
1: to develop it to the stage where it is. A bit of a double-edged sword then. It's amazing to think that a microbe could solve one of the fundamental concerns with nuclear power. The risk of an accident. Because as we move forward, we need low-carbon energy sources that we can rely on, come wind or shine. And that means, as we build more nuclear facilities, the risk of an accident goes up. Admittedly, there's still work to be done to prove that Lynn and materials work outside the lab, and we probably need a larger arsenal of tools so that they work in all conditions, whether that's water that's acidic or alkaline or even salty. But is it enough to put us at ease when building new nuclear power plants? I guess that's for you to decide. Thank you to all my guests this week. That was Lynn McCaskey, Joe Hiltrek and Irina Mehenko.
3: And thank you to Greer for putting that programme together. Next week on The Naked Scientist, we'll be answering your science questions. If you have one, do get in touch. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.